0: So as many of you know, we've been doing a series. The series is called Everyday Discipleship, and 1 Corinthians has been our text. We've been making our way through 1 Corinthians. And as we come now to this 12th chapter, from chapters 12 through chapter 14, the emphasis is on the person, uh, the work, the ministry of the Holy Spirit among the church, in the life of believers, and so we're going to be doing a series within a series. So our big series is Everyday Discipleship. The series within the series will be uh, a series on the, on the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So we want to begin today this series. I want to begin this series today by looking at, um, first of all, who is the Holy Spirit? Because believe it or not, there's quite a bit of ignorance and also there's quite a bit of confusion among Christians about the person of the Spirit. So we want to look at that together today. And it's my hope that through this series, we would all experience the Holy Spirit in fresh, new, and powerful ways. You see, because it's the presence of the Spirit in our lives individually, it's the presence of the Spirit working among us collectively. This is what brings life and vibrancy to the church. It's the presence of God among us. And so that's what I'm anticipating. That's what I'm hoping to see as we come through this series, that we would have a fresh encounter with the spirit and that that fresh encounter would move us into more and more of the things that that God has for us. When when I was pastoring at Calvary Chapel down in Vista in the 19 um, probably this was early 90s late 80s there was there was a season where I remember kind of an ongoing frustration about the fact that it seemed that more people were spectators than participants in the ministry and we you know we did events and we did outreaches and we did we did all kinds of things and most of the time it was the same handful of people that that did everything and the majority of people just sort of watched from the sidelines. And I remember being frustrated by that and wondering, how do you change that? How do you do something about that? And God put on my heart to do a series on the person, the work, the gifts of the Spirit. So I did that. Now, I'd done that before. So it wasn't anything new to do this, except I'd never done it on a Sunday. I'd always done it at a midweek study. So the Lord put on my heart to do it on a Sunday morning and not only to teach on it, but then to present opportunities for people to be filled with the Spirit. And we did that over about a six-week period. During that six weeks, I think every single person that attended our church received prayer to be uh, filled with the Spirit, to be empowered by the Spirit. And here's the amazing thing. That problem that we had that there were more people watching than doing, that problem went away. It changed forever. We never had that issue again because the Spirit of God was actively working in the lives of everyone and everyone was being led and moved and empowered and gifted to do the things that God has called them to do. So, you know, I've always been the kind of person who I'm not that good of a spectator because whenever I'm watching something, I always think I want to get in there and do that. And if there's one place where we shouldn't be spectators, it's in the church, because God has called every one of us to be engaged. He has called every one of us to do things for the kingdom. And so that is our goal, to see us uh, be moved by the Spirit, empowered by the Spirit, as we come through this series, and then, as a result of that, engage in the things that God has called us to engage in. Now, there is, ironically, because the Bible is so filled with references to the Spirit, but there there is, ironically, in church history, there are times and places where there is a real negligence of the Spirit. There, There have even been times in history where people have thought, well, you know, the Holy Spirit, the power of the Spirit that gives us the Spirit, that was, all, that was all important in the early days because they really needed it back then because, man, the world was so messed up, but things are so much better today. Uh, we don't need that so much anymore. That is an attitude that has been present in the church's history, and it is an attitude that still exists among some people today. Now, I remember reading books that were published either late in the 19th or early in the 20th centuries. And these particular authors argued that since the world was obviously getting better and better, now what they meant by that was that the world was becoming more Christian. So they argued because that was the case, the need for the power of the Spirit, like we see in the book of Acts, for example, was no longer necessary. I mean, I I could actually read you quotes from books in my library where people back at that time said those kinds of things. It seemed at that time that uh, the influence of Christianity was was so uh, far and wide that the church itself was going to be able to just In a sense, in their minds, some of them, it was like we were ushering in the kingdom. Missiologists in the early to mid-20th century predicted, this is in that same time frame, predicted that Islam would disappear from off the face of the earth within just a few decades. So in the minds of some, Christianity outgrown its infancy and its ignorance and was now educated and sophisticated, no longer needing those primitive methods that were used in apostolic times. These were Christian writers expressing these types of ideas. Prophecy, healing, tongues, and miracles were, they would acknowledge, needed... No doubt to jumpstart the church, especially in that pagan culture, but surely in the advancing scientific age, these things were no longer necessary. So, in the minds of some, reason, along with the Bible, would be a sufficient means of advancing the gospel and ushering in the kingdom of God. What happened? Well, rather than dying out and disappearing, Islam, as we know, had a major revival that goes on to the present day. Paganism, Gnosticism, spiritualism, far from disappearing, have had a renaissance in the West. Do you know, I was, as you know, I was just traveling in Europe and... One of the things that's, that's so obvious, it's, it's obvious here too, but in Europe it's it's even a little more obvious, the, that paganism is alive and well. It's back. Now, now, paganism is what dominated the European continent before the gospel came. And then the gospel came, and Christian culture came, and what is known as Christendom, which is like a, a culture... Uh, that has been Christianized, came to Europe. But now that is all fading away and paganism is resurfacing. So reason that there was so much confidence in at one point in time, reason has taken a back seat now to emotion and feelings are now the way people decide what is true and false. So the idea was the church doesn't need this supernatural stuff. That was great in the early days. We definitely needed it then. But we're we're so sophisticated now. And through our intellect and through our reason, we're going to be able to continue to see the kingdom of God advance. But nobody was anticipating that there would come a moment when reason would be put on the shelf. And that's where we're at today. We live in a post Truth, culture. Post-truth is a real thing in the 21st century. You can look up the definition of it in the Oxford Dictionary. It was included in the Oxford Dictionary a couple of years ago. And post-truth is defined as this. Truth is not based upon fact or evidence, but truth that is based upon how one feels. That's the world we live in. So how do you address a world like that with reason, You don't, you can't, because reason is no longer relevant. So, since this is the way things are, this is the reality of where we are today, I believe that we need the power and the gifts of the Holy Spirit now in the 21st century as much as they were needed in the first century. See, we we sort of have, we've come full circle. And we're pretty much back at the place culturally where the world was in the first century. It was a pagan, idolatrous world. We live in a pagan, idolatrous world. And it was only through the power of the Spirit of God that this small, seemingly insignificant group called the church could have any impact or make any headway. Now, don't get me wrong. I am a big proponent of the most intellectually robust presentation of the faith that we can present. I I appreciate that. I appreciate the ministers or the ministries of people who are strong theologically, philosophically, historically, culturally, I appreciate all that, but we need more than any of that can possibly offer. If we're gonna have any impact in the world that we currently live in, we need power from heaven. We need power from heaven. So on the one hand, we've got those who put the emphasis on the intellectual which, like I said, I think is, is good to an extent, but it's, it falls far short of what's actually needed. I'm all for missional living, living as the people of God in the culture that we find ourselves in. I'm all for the church in culturally engaging, but without the power of the Holy Spirit upon our missional living and our cultural engagement, we will make little progress against the powers of darkness that are controlling our world. We need something more than even our own collective sanctified efforts can accomplish. So even as as we all come together and we're all thinking in terms of what can we do to impact our world for the kingdom, we need more than the best stuff we could ever come up with. We need the mighty rushing wind of the Spirit to blow upon us in power. And this is something that we cannot forget. We cannot forget it. The Christian faith is supernatural. The Christian faith is supernatural. Now, for some Christians, that's too weird. They don't like the supernatural. And so they reduce it to the intellectual or to the philosophical or to those other kinds of things. But the Christian faith is supernatural and ultimately advanced not by intellectual arguments or cultural relevance, as important as they might be at certain points, but the advancement comes by the power of God. Jonathan Edwards, George Whitfield. John and Charles Wesley, these were, these were brilliant men. These men in the 1700s, these men were kind of leading figures in the, the great moves of the Spirit of God at the time. In the United States, Jonathan Edwards was a leader in um, what we know today as the Great Awakening, the First Great Awakening. And um, George Whitefield was also engaged with that. In Britain, you had John and Charles Wesley, as well as Whitfield. Uh, In there, they they call it, as they look back at that same period of time, they call what happened there the 18th century revival. Now, these men were brilliant men. They were were really, really um, intellectual men. But it wasn't their brilliance that brought those great transformative awakenings. It was the power of the Spirit of God. It wasn't because they were so smart, even though they were incredibly smart. But it wasn't that. It was the power of the Spirit of God, a power that is available to all of God's people now. Today, through our relationship with God, the Holy Spirit. So as we begin this series, I want to start us off by looking at three things today. We're going to look at, number one, the nature of the Holy Spirit. Number two, the relationship between the Holy Spirit and the believer. And thirdly, the Holy Spirit's role in the life and ministry of the church. And and now let me say, none of this is going to be exhaustive because um, for one, there's so much, it would take much longer than we have to go super deep in it. But as we go through this series over the next maybe six weeks or so, we're gonna come back and cover some of these things more thoroughly. But today I just wanna, wanna touch on these things a bit. So the first thing that we need to, understand, the first question that we need to ask is, who is the Holy Spirit? Who is the Holy Spirit? Now, if you're a Christian, you know that we believe in one God, but that one God is actually three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, in case you didn't know this, the Trinity is unique to Christianity. There's no other religion in the world that has an understanding of a God who is triune. One God, not three gods, one God, but in three persons. And the third person of that triune God is the Holy Spirit. So this is the first thing we need to understand. The Holy Spirit is God. He's every bit as God as much, uh, he's, he's every bit as much God as Jesus. He's every bit as much God as the Father. And yet, among Christians, real Christians, good Christians, I would say that that our understanding of the Holy Spirit is probably um, where our, our understanding is least thorough. So we have a much better understanding of God the Son and God the Father than we do of God the Holy Spirit. And so as God's people, as Christians, we need to talk about the Spirit. We need to think about the Spirit. We need to see what the Scripture says about the Spirit. So what the Scripture says, in essence, as I said, is that the Holy Spirit is God. Now, Jesus, when he sent out the apostles to make disciples of all the people groups in the world, um, he sent them out and he said to go into all the world and he said to, to preach the gospel and then to baptize them, those who believe, baptize them in the name, singular, of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus really is the first one to bring the Trinity right out into the open. Now, if you go back and look at the Old Testament, which we'll look at some passages in a moment, but but when you go back and look, you're gonna find references to the Spirit. You're gonna find references to... Uh, the Lord Yahweh, uh, the God of heaven. You're going to find references to the angel of Yahweh who is separate from Yahweh yet is Yahweh. And here's my point. When you go through the Old Testament, you you have these hints that there is this plurality within the nature of God, but it's never spelled out clearly in the Old Testament. There's never a place in the Old Testament where it tells us that there's one God in three persons. Jesus was the one who revealed that to us. And so when Jesus said, baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, he is revealing the triune nature of God. He's revealing the Trinity to us. Now, Paul, in his benediction at the end of 2 Corinthians he used a, sim- a similar kind of a formula. Listen to what he said. He said, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. You see, there's Trinitarian language that's being used there. So Paul is pronouncing a blessing through the Lord Jesus Christ, God the Father, and the Holy Spirit. So the New Testament makes it clear to us that God is triune, and the New Testament also um, really makes it clear that the Holy Spirit is God. Now, you, it seems like you would uh, deduce that from reading the Old Testament, but interestingly, the Jewish people who still read the Old Testament, they have not drawn that conclusion. For them, the Holy Spirit is like just some sort of a force, but they do not link the Holy Spirit with God. So again, the New Testament makes that crystal clear. And in a, in an incident that is recorded in the book of Acts, the fifth chapter, maybe you remember this story where um, this man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira, they had a piece of land, they sold it, and. They brought the money to the apostles and presented it to them, but they kept back part of it. And so they could have kept all of it if they wanted to, but they, so they were being hypocritical. So anyway, as Peter confronts them about this, here's what he says. And incidentally, in his conversation with Ananias, the deity of the Holy Spirit is Is um, stated. So Peter asked him, Ananias, how is it that Satan has filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? And then Peter says, You have not lied to men, but to God. So you see, Peter tells us that the Spirit is God. Now, again, we, we see this throughout scripture. Uh, we know that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? So every, everybody understands, if you're a Christian, you understand God is the creator. Well, many passages in scripture attribute creation to the Holy Spirit. Look at Genesis chapter one, verses one through three. You don't have to turn there. Um, I'll read it to you. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, and God said, let there be light. So in this opening section of the first book of the Bible, you actually have the Trinity being spoken of. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. That's a reference to the Father. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the water. That obviously is a reference to the Holy Spirit. And God said, that is a reference to the word of God. We know Jesus is the word of God. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God and all things were created by him. But we're focusing on the Holy Spirit. So here we see that the spirit is participating in creation. In Job chapter 33, verse four, Job stated, the spirit of God has made me. And then in Psalm 104, the psalmist said that you send your spirit out and they are created. So point is, God is the creator. The Holy Spirit is the creator. The Holy Spirit is God. Also, the Holy Spirit is the author of Scripture. Now, when we think of the Bible What do do we think of it as? We think of it as the word of God, right? And it is. It is the word of God. But what we're told is that it's the spirit is the one whose all scripture is breathed. And the word breathe and spirit are the same word. All scripture is breathed out by God couple of other examples many times when the new testament quotes the old testament the writers attribute the old testament passage to the holy spirit here's an example from acts 4 sovereign lord you spoke by the holy spirit through the mouth of your servant david why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain so here We're being told that the second psalm, that's the quote, the second psalm was the word of the Holy Spirit. The second psalm is the word of God. And then in Acts 28, Paul is quoting from Isaiah, but listen to what he says. He says, the Holy Spirit spoke the truth to our ancestors. When he said, through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say you will be ever hearing but never understanding for this people's heart has become calloused. So you see, the point is that the Spirit is the author of Scripture but like I said, we know that Scripture, all Scripture comes from God. The Spirit is God. And so when you think of the Holy Spirit, you need to think of Him as God. Now, Here's an interesting fact, though, about the Holy Spirit. The order isn't always Father, Son, Holy Spirit, but, it, but a lot of times it is. But notice, going back to the benediction that Paul gave to the Corinthians, Jesus comes first, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God second, that's the Father, and the communion of the Holy Spirit. Most of the time, if there is a, an expression of God's nature in that Trinitarian form, most of the time, the Holy Spirit is in the the last place given. And here's the interesting thing. The Holy Spirit, He has chosen to be, in a sense, the background person. The Father and the Son are the preeminent ones in the sense that they They are the ones that generally get the attention. The spirit is equally God with them, but in the background. And Jesus, when he was talking about the spirit coming, he even said that. He said, when the spirit comes, he will not testify of himself. He will not come and say, okay, uh, you know about God, the father, you know, Jesus is the son. Jesus is believing now. I'm the Holy spirit. I'm here. The Holy Spirit doesn't do that. The Holy Spirit doesn't testify of himself, Jesus said, but he testifies of me. And so that is the position that the Holy Spirit has put himself in. In a sense, he's in the background. Now, I'm going to come back to that, so remember that. But let's go on to the second point. The Holy Spirit and the Christian. See, whether we know it or not, we have a deep relationship with the Holy Spirit. You are not a Christian unless you have a relationship with the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit is the one through whom we become Christians. So we are born of the Spirit, we are indwelt by the Spirit, we are sanctified by the Spirit, we are sealed by the Spirit. And there are many other things that we could talk about that are there in the relationship between the the spirit and the believer. But like I said, we will cover that as as we go forward. But just for a moment, think about this. So we're born of the spirit. Um, We are drawn to God by the spirit. We are convicted of sin by the spirit. And then we are regenerated by the spirit. So regenerated means to be made alive, to be born. So Jesus, when he was speaking to Nicodemus about the need to be born again, he referred to that as being born of the Spirit. So we are born again by the Spirit. We are saved through the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, according to Paul in Titus 3. So we are born of the Spirit. Secondly, we are indwelt by the Spirit. The Spirit of God lives in you as a Christian. And Paul says, if anyone does not have the Spirit, they do not belong to Christ. If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. So a true Christian is a person who is indwelt by the Spirit. The Spirit of God lives in you. That's what happens. He comes, he makes you alive spiritually, and he takes up residence in you. Jesus said it like this. He's speaking to his disciples. In John chapter 14, he said, he said, the spirit is with you presently as he's speaking to them. And then he says this, and he will be in you in the future. And of course, that would happen after Jesus died and rose again. Paul, in writing to the Corinthians back in the sixth chapter of this letter, he he asked them this question. Don't you know that your bodies? are the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you. The Holy Spirit lives in us. And then we're sanctified by the Spirit. So sanctified is that work of God in setting us apart from sin, setting us apart uh, for himself. And again, earlier in this letter, speaking to these people, Paul said, you were sanctified by the Spirit of God. You were set apart. It's in the passage where he's saying, you used to be this, but now you've been washed, you've been justified, you've been sanctified in the name of the Lord and by the Spirit of our God. So the Spirit of God is the one who sanctifies us. And then finally, we're sealed by the Spirit. And again, in Ephesians, Paul tells us that you were sealed by the Spirit of God Until the day of redemption. And what it means to be sealed is it means that you have been secured as the property of God. So in the ancient world, let's just say something belonged to the Roman government. Well, the Roman government would would stamp that with their seal. And that showed who owned it. And that simultaneously secured it. Because unless you're a representative of the Roman government, you can't touch this. And so when Paul says that we are sealed by the Holy Spirit, he's basically saying that we are God's property. And it is the guarantee that as we're his presently, we will be his eternally. So the Spirit of God seals us, sanctifies us, indwells us, and regenerates us. Now, the Spirit of God does more, but like I said, we will leave that for a future study. But let's look really quickly, finally, at the Holy Spirit and the church. And I'm gonna use these two passages to refer more to the church, but they could, uh, I mean, in a sense, they refer to us Uh, individually as well. So we could say that these next two points could go back in the category that we just looked at, the Holy Spirit in relation to the believer, but we'll broaden it and look at it in regard to believers collectively, the church. So the Holy Spirit and the church, what does the Holy Spirit do for the church? The Holy Spirit empowers the church. You see, God never intended For the church to run on human energy or human ingenuity. God intends the church run on the power of the spirit. Now God uses human energy. He uses human ingenuity. But not dependent of the spirit. The spirit comes upon that. Because if the spirit doesn't come upon that. Then we've got really nothing to offer. So Jesus said this to the disciples in Acts chapter eight, excuse me, Acts chapter one, verse eight. He said, he he says, you're gonna go out into the world. You're gonna preach the gospel. And he says, wait till you receive power from heaven. And then he says this, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses. So, the Holy Spirit empowers the church. The Holy Spirit empowers you and me as God's people and us together collectively. The Holy Spirit empowers us to accomplish the will of God, to expand the kingdom of God. Secondly, the Holy Spirit calls and sends his workers. The Holy Spirit is the one who calls us, not just to Christ, that's where it starts. But the Holy Spirit calls us into God's will. He calls us into service. And a beautiful picture of that is found in Acts 13. We read this, the Holy Spirit said, so the context is in the church in the city of Antioch in Syria, there were a group of prophets and teachers. They were all gathered together. They were seeking the Lord. And this Holy Spirit said, Separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So this is how Saul, who is also called Paul, this is how he is launched into his apostolic ministry. Separate to me Barnabas and Saul. God separates them to himself. And then it says and they being sent out by the Holy Spirit. So God calls and he sends his workers. So the the picture is the Holy Spirit is very active in the life of the church. The Holy Spirit is very active in the life of the church. Some of you have heard the name uh, A.W. Tozer. A.W. Tozer was a a well-known Preacher, pastor back in the mid-20th century, he was a bit of a firebrand. He offended almost everybody he ever spoke to, um, but he has some really great things to say. But he said at one time, he said, if the Holy Spirit was removed from the ancient church, 90% of its activity would cease. If the Holy Spirit was removed from the modern church, 90% of its activity would continue. You can see why that irritated some people. (laughs) But he had a point. His point was so much of the church is energized by human energy and ingenuity rather than by the Spirit. Now... There are many other things that we'll look at concerning the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer and the church, as I said, as we go into the future. But let me bring this to a conclusion with a question. Maybe it's more than one question, but we'll start with this one. And just, you know, I'm asking you this question. Be be honest, there's nothing to be ashamed about, embarrassed about. Um, I, I, my answer to this question is yes. But here's the question: Have you ever envied the apostles and early believers because their relationship and experience with the Lord seems so much more real and vibrant than yours? Have you ever felt that way? I have. I've certainly felt that way. Or have you ever been reading the Gospels and wished you could have lived back then? And walked and talked with Jesus. Because if you could just have done that, things would be so much different. You ever felt that way? Well, listen, when we feel that way, it means that we haven't fully understood or experienced the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. You see, because this is what the Holy Spirit does. When when Jesus was telling the disciples that he was going to leave them and they were grief-stricken over this. They were confused. They couldn't, what, what, what do you mean you're going to leave? They, they just didn't understand that. Jesus said this to them. He said, but I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm going to leave, but I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I will come back to you. And then he said this. He said that he would send the spirit of truth you see, Jesus came back to the church after his death, resurrection, and ascension in the person of the Holy Spirit. Now, we sometimes think how, how great it would have been to be there with Jesus, and it probably would have been amazing. But all of us couldn't have had the kind of attention from him that we long for because there's too many of us. So Jesus says, I'm gonna do something better. I'm gonna come back to you, but not like this because in that state, he was limited, right? He was in a physical body. I'm gonna come back to you through the person of the spirit and whoever you are and wherever you are and however many of you there are, won't matter. Each and every person will have that intimate connection with me through the Spirit. So Jesus actually said when they were lamenting his departure, he said, it's better. You guys don't understand it, but it's better that I go away. If I don't go, the Spirit won't come. But when the Spirit comes, it's going to be a better situation. But again, we have to ask ourselves the question, do we feel like it's a better situation? And I think that a lot of the time we don't. And we don't because we're not engaging with and connecting with the Holy Spirit in the way that he wants to engage us and in the way that he wants to connect with us and in the way that he wants to work in us and in the way that he wants to work through us. Now, what I'm saying is that The Spirit, what Jesus was to the first generation of believers, the apostles and those early believers during his three-year ministry, what Jesus was to them, the Holy Spirit is to us throughout church history. The Holy Spirit is the presence of Christ. As a matter of fact, the Holy Spirit is referred to as the Spirit of Christ. I already referenced Paul's statement to the Romans. If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. The Spirit of Christ. In Luke chapter 16, Luke refers to the Spirit of Jesus. He's talking about being forbidden by the Spirit to go in a certain direction. He says the Spirit of Jesus forbid us to go. And then Peter also speaks of the Spirit of Christ. He's talking about the Old Testament prophets when they prophesied through the Spirit of Christ who was upon them. So, you see, it's through the Holy Spirit that we have the experience with Jesus that we long to have. Now, a lot of people in the church today are quite honestly afraid of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit freaks people out. And it didn't necessarily help that the old translation referred to him as the Holy Ghost. <laughs> They're like, whoa, the ghost? I mean, that sounds kind of scary. But not only the reference to the Holy Ghost, but also a lot of Christian people, well meaning people, but misguided people, have done a lot of crazy things claiming to be under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit throughout the history of the church. And that isn't just a new thing that happens among wild, wild charismatic people. This has happened over and over again in church history, where people move away from the foundation of the scripture and they start getting into more of an emotional thing and, and they start thinking, that the, well, the Holy Spirit is doing this and the Holy Spirit's doing that. And, and actually, no, the Holy Spirit's not doing that because the Holy Spirit doesn't do he doesn't do weird things in a a negative sense. He does do weird things because, you know, healings and resurrections and prophecies and tongues. I mean, those those are kind of weird things, right? They're extraordinary. That's not the normal experience as we go through this life and world. So on the one hand, he does weird things, but he does good weird things, not bad weird things. But But... you know, there has been this this fear. And in the church, especially in the last 100 plus years, there, there's been sort of these, these two positions. There's that position of people who just do crazy things and say, the Holy Spirit, he's the one who's leading me to do this. But then there's another group that says, the Holy Spirit, like we read about Him in the New Testament, particularly in the book of Acts, and all those miracles and those things in 1 Corinthians about tongues and prophecy, that stuff all ceased when the apostles died. It died with the apostles. It was important, like I said in the beginning, it was important to get things started but we don't need it now. We've got the Bible, and since we have the Bible, we don't need that stuff anymore. So you've got these two positions that are quite often held by many Christians, one one side or the other. So one neglects the Spirit because they don't want any of that weirdness, so they've just theologically decided the Spirit doesn't do stuff like that anymore, and we don't have to think about it or worry about it or... Be bothered by it. Then this other, other group says, oh man, you guys are so, you're just stuck with your Bible and you're missing out and God's doing all kinds of things and, and they're doing really crazy stuff and saying, see, look, God is working. And th- those are two extremes that we must avoid. We must avoid that. Here's what we need to do We need to take our understanding of what the Spirit of God does, first and foremost, from the Scriptures. And I think the best place to really discover that is the book of Acts. So here's a challenge I'm going to give to every one of you. We're going to go through this series over the next, like I said, maybe six weeks on the gifts and ministry of the Spirit and so forth. I want to encourage you, I want to challenge you to read the book of Acts alongside this series that we're teaching. Because as we teach, the book of Acts is going to give you the picture of what these things look like. And what things look like in the book of Acts. Now some people, let me just say this, some people, some theologically minded people, say the book of Acts is a transitional book. It just tells us historically how they transition from the Gospels to the church age, but it's not um, a prescriptive book. It's not telling us how we should do it. So they would say, we can learn some history from the book of Acts, and wow, some amazing things happened then, but there's not much application for us today. I completely disagree with that. I completely reject that. I believe that the book of Acts is a picture of what it looks like when the Holy Spirit is leading the church. The book of Acts, if you know, if you've ever read in your Bible, I always refer to it as the book of Acts, but the proper title is the book of the Acts of the Apostles. But, you know, that, that was given by somebody. That wasn't, Luke didn't write that down. Luke's the author of Acts. Because when you read the book of Acts, it's not really the Acts of the Apostles, it's the Acts of a few Apostles and then a bunch of other people. A more accurate description of the content of the book of Acts is the Acts of the Holy Spirit through the people of God. So this is what I'm saying. If you read Acts alongside of this teaching, you're going to get a picture of this is what God is desiring in the church. God wants us to be experiencing the gifts of the Spirit. God wants us to be familiar with prophecy. God wants to do healing works among us. God wants us to experience the gift of tongues. God wants us to Expect him to direct us and guide us and show us things that we don't know. That's how he wants us living. Jesus, when he was here, remember the apostles and his disciples. They had access to him. They went to him. They had questions for him. And what did he do? He responded. Now, Jesus is not here in that sense, is he? But guess what? The spirit of Christ is with us. We all should be able to say these words. The Lord spoke to me and said. Every one of us should be able to say that. Because guess what? That's what God does. He speaks to us. He speaks to us through his word. And this is the foundation. And this is the guideline. And this is where we test everything else. He speaks to us through his word. But he also, he speaks to us in our hearts. He puts a thought in our minds. He has a person say something that is actually him speaking to us through that person. And it's a preacher sometimes. I know some of you, and I've had this experience. Some of you have come here, and you have sat, and you have got up and said, wow, God really spoke to me. And it happens through a preacher, but sometimes it just happens through a friend in a conversation. Sometimes somebody comes up and says, hey, I feel like the Lord wants me to tell you this. I don't know why. And they tell you, and you're like, wow, that was God. And sometimes they don't even preface it with that because they don't even know that they're prophesying. They just say something, and the Lord speaks to you through it. Cheryl was telling me this morning about that happening to her yesterday. She was sharing yesterday, and she was telling a story about something, and as she's telling the story, the Holy Spirit is saying to her, yes, Cheryl, that's the story. Remember that. That's the way I do it. And and believe me, I've had that it happened to me so many times. I'm speaking to somebody. I'm advising them. I'm counseling them. And the Lord says, do you hear what you're saying to them, Brian? Because you need to receive it for yourself. See, God, this, God wants there to be this vibrant life atmosphere where we come in together and we're expecting God's going to speak. And like I said, my entire life as a Christian, I can map out my life based upon things that God spoke to me. I got from this point to 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 this point because God spoke to me all along the way. And He's going to do that for you. He wants to do that for all of His people. That's what the Holy Spirit does. And so... Finally, let's receive him in all his fullness. I don't want to just go through an exercise over the next six weeks of imparting information. Information's important, especially biblical information, but we must take this and we must Make it our own experience. And let me say this finally. We can quench the spirit. The spirit wants to move. The spirit wants to speak. We can quench the spirit. Paul said that to the Thessalonians. He said, do not quench the Spirit. But right in that context, he said this. He said, do not despise prophecy. And he's telling us something there. He's saying to despise, to disdain, to neglect, to stay away from these things, that quenches the Spirit. When I say, oh, I don't, I don't want any of that. That's too weird. That quenches the Spirit. We don't want to quench the Spirit. We don't want to throw water on the Spirit. We want to throw logs on the fire. We want the fire to be stoked, the fire of the Spirit. So we open up our hearts and say, Lord, even though this is strange, even though this is embarrassing maybe, even though this is humiliating, Lord, I, I just want you to work. And, and let me just tell you this from my own experience. As, as you begin to step out in the spirit and begin to experience the work of the spirit, there will be moments when you will, because of your pride or because of the uncomfortableness of the situation or whatever it is, there are things you just won't want to do. You just think, oh gosh, this just seems like it's going to be so weird. And yet the Lord's saying, Just trust me, don't worry about it. But if you say, no, no, I'm not going to do it. That's going to be too weird. That's quenching the Spirit. So you miss an opportunity. But if you just yield to it and say, okay, Lord, here I go. I'm going to trust you. Then the blessing comes from that. So we don't want to quench the Spirit. But then finally, it's also possible to grieve the Spirit. And to grieve means to sadden. And when you sadden the spirit and the context of saddening the spirit is sin, when we live in open sin, that grieves the spirit. And obviously that's going to hinder the spirit from doing the things he wants to do in and through us. So finally, let's receive him in all his fullness. And as we finish here today, as we take the next few minutes, these next couple of songs, don't rush out the door. Take this moment to say, Lord, I want, I want the fullness of your Spirit at work in my life. I, I want to be and do all that you want me to be and do. And that is directly related to our relationship with the Holy Spirit. So Lord, help us to open our hearts. Help us to allow you to fill us. Fill us, Lord, with your spirit. Forgive us for the things that have grieved your spirit. Forgive us for the times that we quench the spirit. And Lord, by your grace, would you send your spirit among us? Lord, we know theologically you're in us. May we know experientially that you're in us. We know theologically that you come upon people to empower them. May we know experientially you coming upon us to empower us. Work by your spirit. Forgive us, cleanse us, and fill us, we pray in Jesus' name.